Thank you very much, John. Um, well, I'm going to speak about progressive roles for business in the South African transition. <clears throat> and I want to look at the activities of South African business in facilitating political change and in the pursuit within business itself of just business practice. Um, and it turns out that those two activities are closely interrelated. So a bit of background on South Africa. The Union of South Africa was formed in 1910 as a self-governing dominion within the British Empire, that's with the same sort of status as Canada and Australia and New Zealand. It was formed after the Boer War when the British had who had possessed the colonies of the Cape and Natal, then defeated and absorbed the independent Africana republics of the Transvaal and Orange Free State. White privilege was built into the constitution and was cemented after 1948 when the Africana National Party came to power with a policy of rigid racial separation, apartheid, with an hierarchy of privilege, whites at the top, then coloreds of mixed race, Indians and other Asians, and at the bottom, black Africans. Apartheid affected every area of life. It dictated the differentiation in pay, training, the level of skilled employment, and any entrepreneurship open to each race. The National Party remained in power from 1948 to the early 1990s, despite strong opposition internally and internationally. The white electorate voted to become a republic and left the Commonwealth in 1961, but the Commonwealth, the UN, the Organization of African Unity at the time, and Europe remained seized of the issue of South Africa. The leading liberation movement, the ANC, was banned in 1960. Nelson Mandela and others who went underground and began armed resistance were caught and imprisoned <coughs> in 1964. And the organisation existed from then on in exile, with some capacity for sabotage and proxy organisation within South Africa. And there was always internal resistance, <coughs> bubbling up and dying down with repression, almost always in some way multiracial. The churches, NGOs, the media, lawyers uh, kept the internal opposition alive, and a fairly brutal and intrusive security system grew up to counter it. By the 1980s, violent internal opposition was being met with a mix of semi-reforms by President P.W. Botha and harsh repression. And there was rising grassroots violence also between the more conservative and more progressive black groupings and international sanctions were beginning to bite, particularly in finance and what the white uh, population noticed most in sport. Business in South Africa. Uh, much of South Africa is farmland, but the economy has been dominated by the large mining houses, led by Anglo-American and De Beers, and the industrial and finance sectors that grew up around the mining. Over half of the companies listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange in the early 1990s were controlled by Anglo-American. For a century, business was largely an English-speaking preserve among the whites, uh, headed by various versions of the Federated Chamber of Industries or South African Chamber of Business, 
with affiliated regional and local chambers of commerce and industry. Afrikaans business became organized in 1942 with the Afrikaans Handels Institute, AHI. Black African business lagged very far behind. It was severely restricted. For example, manufacturing was forbidden in uh, black areas and under apartheid and it formed its first national structure, the National African Chamber of Commerce, NAFCOC, in 1964. In parallel with the controversial claim that churches should not meddle in politics, business had a similar adage, the business of business is business. But apartheid policies and the controversies they engendered intruded heavily on business. And apartheid was not good for business. After enjoying an annual growth spurt of 5.5% per annum in the 1960s, South Africa's economy suffered under internal labour restrictions and growing international sanctions, and foreign investment fell sharply, especially after 1976 with the Soweto riots. Sanctions increased, and in the 1980s, growth was zero to negative in face of a population rising by 2.5% per year. Uh, something about the ethos of liberal English-speaking business. It was typified by Oxford-educated Harry Oppenheimer, who died in 2000, chair of Anglo-American from 1957 to 82, and of De Beers up to 84. Oppenheimer typified liberal gradualism. He believed that democracy depended on education and that in a free economy with an open education system, black people would gradually join the middle class. He financed the Progressive Party, which for 13 years, from 1961 to 74, had only one MP, but in Helen Sussman, a very remarkable one. Then in 74, she was joined by five other prog MPs, and the Progressive Federal Party, as it then was, numbered 27 and was the official opposition by 1981. Oppenheimer owned the Rand Daily Mail, another organ of internal opposition, flagship of the liberal investigative press, until he controversially pulled the plug on it in 1985. Importantly, its staff carried on as the Weekly Mail, which still um, is, is published, and teamed up with the, the weekly edition, airmail edition of The Guardian. As a philanthropist, Oppenheimer created several major internal development organisations, and his obituary in The Economist quotes him as saying that, despite apparently having little political impact, but he did in the end, he believed he had tried to build, and I quote, a better sort of society and a better country, and to keep alive what I considered a voice of common sense and humanity. Now, the ANC had a major presence in the Zambian capital, Lusaka, and South African business also had a large footprint in Zambia, above all, again, through the mining interests of Anglo-American. In 1985, Travel to Zambia from South Africa became easier, South Africa relaxed travel restrictions, and Zambia was waiving visa requirements for guests of the ANC. 
Oppenheimer never ventured into making contacts with the ANC, but his younger successor as chair of Anglo, Gavin Rennie, did. In September 1985, President Kaunda of Zambia hosted the ANC and top English-speaking business leaders at his safari lodge in Fuwe in the Luangwa Game Park in Zambia. That meeting had been planned since April 1985 and several times it was postponed. Just to remind you of the chronology, Mandela was in jail until February of 1990 and all of this was um, in the face of uh, the apartheid uh, regime in 1985. So it had been several times postponed and at first President P.W. Botha, who hovered between reform and repression, had given it implicit approval so long as it was quiet. But he turned against it when it was announced in the press and those taking part would thereafter be labelled as disloyal to South Africa and that was really serious in the Afrikaner community particularly. So two prominent Afrikaners, Anton Rupert of the tobacco giant Rembrandt and Fred Duplessis, chair of the Afrikaner-based insurance company Sanlam, pulled out of the Mfue meeting. Two English-speaking leaders who come into the story later, Chris Ball of Barclays Bank and Mike Rusholt, chair of Barlow Rand, which was the next big biggest conglomerate after Anglo, were unable to go at the last minute moment, but they were very much in the process. <coughs> the party that flew in from Johannesburg in an Anglo jet in defiance of P.W. Botha was led by Gavin Rennie, chair of Anglo, and, uh, and also he had studied at Oxford, a strong Anglo tradition, with him were Zach de Beer, a liberal politician who was at that time an executive director of Anglo, Tony Bloom, the CEO of Premier Milling, an Anglo subsidiary, Hugh Murray of Anglo's Leadership South Africa magazine, a big uh, well-known magazine, and Peter Saroa, director of the South Africa Foundation, and two influential editors, Tertius Myberg, of the South African Sunday Times, and unusually a, 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 a paper with national um, spread and readership, also owned by Anglo, and Harold Packendorf of Defaderland, uh, leading Afrikaans uh, newspaper daily. So the ANC team flew in a Zambian Air Force plane, the uh, Anglo people arrived in their own plane, and the ANC were led by its president and leader in exile, Oliver Tambo, with Tabo Mbeki, Chris Harney, the head of the uh, ANC's army in Konto Wasiswe, Mac Maharaj, Palo Jordan and James Stewart. Joe Slovo, the chair of the Communist Party, stayed away, but sent answers to the eight questions the businessmen were most likely to ask. The meeting took place under a large tree, and incidentally, what does one wear for such a gathering? What is the right gear for meeting communists and terrorists in the bush? The businessmen, after much debate, decided to arrive in safari suits. The ANC pitched up in a mixture of business suits, blazers and afro shirts. So, as one businessman remarked, it was they, and not the ANC, who looked like the bunch of gorillas. <laughs> 
Kenakanda introduced the two groups, saying they were all South Africans who had come together to find out what they had in common, which was much more than what divided them, and to avert an imminent explosion in South Africa, where violent grassroots resistance to apartheid rule was rising. <clears throat> so over the next six hours, the two sides shared views and positions on the current political situation within South Africa, the repression, the state of emergency which had just been imposed, the partial dismantling of apartheid laws by P.W. Botha, the state of the economy, which was dire, sanctions, the ANC's policies of military and political struggle going side by side, the release of political prisoners, the possibility of nationalisation by the ANC, the release of Nelson Mandela, the socialist vision of the Freedom Charter of 1955, which guided ANC policy, the extent to which communists were really in charge of ANC policy, and whether the future could be capitalist or socialist with widespread nationalisation. <coughs> so the meeting was a breakthrough. They were able to get beyond stereotypes. Tony Bloom of Premier Milling wrote an account which contained his surprise at the lack of Marxist-Leninist jargon and that the ANC seemed to take Sweden as the ideal society <coughs> rather than the Soviet Union. It established that serious, thoughtful dialogue was possible. It encouraged the South Africans to, to tell their government they should start talking to the ANC and it led to deepening contacts between the two groups. Black business leaders very shortly afterwards uh, visited Lusaka, and then the union, the union leaders, very importantly the black trade unions, were made legal in the 1980s, and union leaders, um, who were very much aligned to the ANC, were able to visit shortly afterwards. So a little bit about Mike Rosholt, who didn't make it to Mfui on that occasion. He died only in March this year, at the age of 97. He was chair of Barlow Rand and a person of real vision and the main internal business leader to respond to the Sullivan Code. I'm not sure if I can get the Sullivan Code up here without losing other stuff, but I will just try to do so. Got it? Good. So, what was the Sullivan Code? Well, in 1977, the first group of US businesses operating in South Africa signed up to a set of employment principles formulated by the American Baptist minister, minister the Reverend Leon Sullivan, who happened also to be on the board of General Motors. It's a simple one-page code of conduct for American companies operating in South Africa. I won't read it out because I think you can read it. Can everybody read it from the back? Yes? No? Okay. So it's non-segregation of the races and all eating, comfort, locker rooms, etc., etc. It's really non-racialism and fairness and justice in the workplace. And then an amplification to the code in 85 required US companies to work to eliminate laws and customs which impede social and political justice. 
quite a lot of American companies, quite about a hundred, actually pulled out of South Africa because of the pressure of um, of shareholder uh, action and um, not being able to uh, fully implement the Sullivan Code because you couldn't under apartheid laws. However, the code was central to debate on sanctions and disinvestment and it put pressure on South African companies and made it easier for them to move to. In the case of Barlow Rand in particular, under Mike Rossholt, it really had an impact. In 1978, the Barlow Rand group produced its own contextualised, non-discriminatory code of employment practice, advancing the human rights and training of workers within existing law and pushing for further change. Both Barlow's and Anglo were lobbying government to legalise black trade unions. In the industrial town of Middleburg in the eastern Transvaal, Barlow's code of conduct brought about cooperation between management and workers in the subsidiary Middleburg Steel and Alloys and expanded into a social compact involving the whole Middleburg town community and the town and township. So in 1980, Middleburg Steel and Alloys launched an internal programme, MS&A 2000, based on the Barlow's Code, involving the whole management and workforce in transforming into a united, cohesive company. Practical changes ranged from desegregation of washrooms to training for previously reserved jobs. Reserved to whites, that is. During the disturbances and stayaways of the mid-1980s, the ANC comrades of Middleburg's township of Mclusi generally allowed free passage for MS&A employees to go to work. And the MD, John Gomasol, was keen to spread the company's non-racial cooperative principles to the surrounding community. So he challenged a meeting in the town hall, if harmony, success and incredible growth are possible within an equal opportunity company, why can't it be extended to the town, region and country as a whole? So in May 1990, some unemployed comrades, backed by the trade union uh, main organisation, Kasatu, began intimidating some of the uh, personnel officers of MSNA, demanding to be given jobs. And the result of that was a compact in which the comrades became makers of compots, uh, comrades' pots, cooking pots made by them under um, the supervision of MS&A. And I won't go into all the detail, but it was a big success. And uh, I'll jump to the paragraph where Mark Drewell, the MS&A's communications manager, recalled an unexpected visit in mid-December 1990. It was during a full meeting of, meeting of councillors, church leaders, business leaders and comrades from the township that we heard a knock on the door, and in walked Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We were obviously surprised, but he asked us to carry on while he sat at the back and listened. Later he asked if he could say a few words. He started with a prayer, and then said if what was happening in Middleburg could be repeated throughout the country, then South Africa would have a great future ahead of it. A similar phenomenon was happening in the eastern Cape town of Stutterheim. And I'm going to tell you about some other things very quickly. The consultative business movement 
In January 1987, Chris Ball, head of Barclays Bank, which by then was owned by Anglo, and other business leaders, including Mervyn King, not, not, of the, not, not the London one, but uh, head of Trade Grow and the next judge, Zach de Beer, Neil Chapman of Southern Life and others, came to a consultant um, called Chris Donnell and said they had realised that the normal organs of organised business, particularly the Federation of, um, of, 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 in, of Federated Chamber of in Industries at that time, was incapable of, as organisations of taking a really progressive political stance as they were held back by um, criticism from government, lambasting from government, and by members, firms that feared to stick their necks out. So they asked this consultant who knew the leaders of the internal mass opposition movement, the United Democratic Front, the authentic black leadership, to bring them together. They honestly didn't know who to go and, and, and talk to and how to do it. So Christo spent the next 18 months creating links, and they all came together at the GenCore Training Centre near Pretoria on the weekend of the 5th to 7th of August of 1988. 76 very wary people came together, of whom 41 were white business leaders who decided for the meeting to call themselves the Creative Minority, and 33 UDF leaders, a rainbow group who called themselves the representative majority. Some couldn't come because they were imprisoned or had restrictions on their travel. <coughs> Banning orders in those days in South Africa included the rule that a banned person may only meet and converse with one other person at a time, apart from close family. The banning orders led to farce. Um, the church bears an ordeal would stand outside the church after the service and a queue would form to say good morning to him one by one so as not to break the law. When Azar Kachalia, a well-known human rights lawyer who was under such a banning order, stood up to speak at the uh, CBM meeting, he quipped that he would speak to Chris Donnell in the front row and others could listen if they wished. That was how one had to operate when apartheid was still in force. On the Sunday morning, the creative minority resolved to formalise itself as the Consultative Business Movement, the CBM describing itself as an alliance of South African business leaders and professionals dedicated to working towards a fair and just society and a successful economy in a united, non-racial democracy. The CBM committed itself to change and to consultation with all interest groups, promoting a clear set of principles, trust and respect, a non-racial democracy, one nation for all, conditions conducive to economic growth and the just distribution of wealth, urgent progress in education, housing, health, welfare and job creation, peace, justice, stability and full international relations in a post-apartheid society. It had been accepted that politics and economics were intertwined and could not be kept apart. 
the CBM would be a significant creative catalyst for change. It wasn't an ordinary mandated business organisation of the lowest common denominator, but it based itself on the principle of the highest effective multiplier, the power of a critical mass of supporters acting in the interests of democratic values and deep concern over the future of the country. And at its height, the membership was 140 businesses, including all the largest business houses. It enabled business to support the internal peace and the negotiations process. The Comscold talks. In June of 1987, in London, the exiled AMC leadership had a meeting with 23 leaders of British firms operating in South Africa. And out of conversations at that meeting came a request from Oliver Tambo of the ANC for business to facilita facilitate conversations between themselves and Africana opinion formers. The firm that took this idea up was Consolidated Goldfields, based in London but with its operations in South Africa. Its director, Humphrey Woods, asked Fleur de Villiers, a London-based South African liberal journalist, to use her contacts to get influential Africana ac academics involved, which she successfully did. The main one was Billy Esterhazer, who has written a book, Endgame, about the whole thing. And a series of meetings ensued in England between top ANC leadership and the academics, with the knowledge of the South African National Intelligence Service, which was not then a sinister outfit, but was out to engineer positive political change. So the first meeting was in November 1987, not far from here, at the Complete Angler Hotel, just by the bridge in Marlow on Thames. And meetings <coughs> happened thereafter in hotels and at Conskold's country retreat in Somerset, Mells Park. And these talks enabled the intelligence service to make their first official contact with the ANC in exile, which happened in September of 1989. And meanwhile, incidentally, from 1985 onwards, there had been a growing internal official contact between the government and Mandela in prison. And finally, um, Mandela, uh, sorry, management negotiations experience. This was a key learning for the transition. Um, by April 1991, talks between the ANC and government, this is 15 months after Mandela's release, talks had ground to a halt and grassroots violence was rising. Church and business leaders facilitated the way forward, getting the politicians together to negotiate <coughs> a national peace accord. And the methodology that they used came out of their experience of negotiations between <coughs> the unions, legalised in 1980, and management, particularly in the Anglo and the Barlow's groups. Bobby Godsell of Ang Anglo was negotiating with Cyril Ramaphosa, now South Africa's president, then the head of the <coughs> National Union of Mine Workers, though he is a lawyer, in fact, and in the Barlow's group, Jane Ida of Passatu with Andre Lamprecht, a protege of Rothschild. <coughs> what they did was to develop a, a, a methodology of creating recognition agreements between management and the union, 
with codes of conduct and um, mechanisms for resolving future disputes non-violently. And this whole methodology fed in to the way that the peace accord was constructed. And the peace accord was um, supported by the CBM. It was signed in September 1991. It created peace structures which continued to have business support and personnel and uh, plant and funding and so on. And the CBM also supported the constitutional negotiations. So in sum, business played a key role in the transition, out of enlightened self-interest, no doubt, but out of genuine concern as well for the future of South Africa. I think I've probably gone over time. Thank you.